Hi, this is Ann Hill from Dream Talk Radio, and today I have part two of um, the series of interviews that I'm doing for this great series of books. It's called Lucid Dreaming, New Perspectives on Consciousness in Sleep. And last month I interviewed the editors, Ryan Hurd and Kelly Bulkley, and also three of the contributors who each wrote a chapter of the book. This month uh, we're taking volume two, which is religion, culture, and creativity, and we're talking to not just Ryan Hurd, <laughs> but we'll see, let's, I'll, I'll just cycle through. So there's Ryan Hurd, and then from way far away, there's uh, Dr. Claire Johnson, and we have Shane Dahl, and Dr. Fariba Bugzaran. So welcome, everybody, to this uh, Hangout. I'm so glad you could make it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So, so Ryan, I, I'll start with you. And can you just set it up, set us up here and talk about the project and specifically what your intention was behind this uh, really fascinating and uh, vivid uh, volume of articles? Sure. Well, thanks for having us for this second call. And you know, something that that Kelly Bulkley in the last call mentioned was that when we were sorting through 30 plus chapters of different topics on lucid dreaming, we were presented with the difficulty of having to bifurcate them into a two volume set and, and the challenges that that would make. Um, and we went through a, a lot of different ways and in some ways some of the chapters could have ended up in either of the volumes. Um, but it worked out rather nicely, and I think in, in the second volume, which deals with, uh, you know, issues of religion and culture um, and creativity, uh, but also history um, and, of course, spirituality uh, and anthropology, there, there's, there's a sort of a, a more subjective, um, personal take to some of these chapters. Um, a lot of the, ch of the chapter authors include their own dreams as they discuss their research um, and, it, and it feels more integrative um, and it also there's just a tremendous variability of the kinds of experiences that people are talking about um, from the stuff that Shane will be discussing uh, with his fieldwork experiences um, to, to Claire's uh, personal research with creativity to Fariba's amazing process through the decades with art and lucid dreaming uh, it's just it's it's an incredible range and it's difficult to, to grasp. It's difficult for me to hold it all and say I can't believe we're talking about the same topic here. This is about lucid dreaming, uh, which really goes to show just how amazing and uh, multi you know dimensional this topic is in the in the beginning. And also, I mean, it's amazing to me that there's this many people studying it from different angles and looking at different aspects of it and you know all these different cultural approaches I mean one thing I'd love to do uh, maybe like the third in this series I would love to to get together some some of the folks who've done these great um, studies of different cultural um, cultural uses and beliefs around lucid dreaming because that I think is something that's that's in both volumes it'd be really worthwhile to look at more. Absolutely and, and actually the cultural dimensions of lucidity was one of the original ideas of pulling this anthology together in the first place because it's something that uh, you don't often hear or read about um, in the mainstream press and when people talk about lucid dreaming research they, there's not um, too much of an awareness of the cultural variability of dreams in general that people could experience dreaming in different ways and, and act upon them in different ways, incubate dreams, bring them in, um, and just have that feedback system and how important culture is as an intermediary between the self uh, in the dreaming mind. And so, right, so, and this is something that Shane for sure can talk about, but it's, it's, an, it's an, uh, something that is often missing, I think, in the discussions of the psychology or the science. There's, you know, we're miss, we miss the culture. Great. Well, okay, so thanks for that introduction. Let's just jump right in. And I'm just kind of going from uh, the front to the back of the book, so Claire, you're up first. Uh, Claire Johnson, can you you want to just share a little bit about your background and what got you into this subject, and a little bit of what your chapter is about? Yeah, sure. Um, 
Well, so, I mean, I've been into lucid dreaming for very many years. Um, I, I had my first lucid dream when I was three, and I've had thousands over the years. And so I decided to do a PhD on lucid dreaming and the creative process. And for the PhD, I wrote two lucid, lucid dream-inspired novels, Breathing in Color and Dream Runner. Uh, and I drew on my lucid dreams to help me to write uh, those novels. Um, and it's interesting what you just said about there being so many different perspectives on, on lucid dreaming, because I've just come tonight um, from a book club meeting. Uh, they'd, they'd read Breathing in Color, so they invited me along. And I'm in Germany, and it may be different in the States, but in Germany, um, some people, you know, just they don't know that much about lucid dreaming. So I had all sorts of questions from the very basic ones about what is lucid dreaming to what can you do with lucid dreaming. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a, I mean, it's a topic which I find absolutely passionate because there are so many things you can do with lucid dreaming and not just the creativity which I focused on for my PhD, but so many other things. Uh, healing is another very fascinating topic for me. And yeah, so I'm just uh, exploring all sorts of aspects of it. And in my chapter, um, Magic, Meditation and the Void, Creative Dimensions of Lucid Dreaming, I talk also about yeah, meditation in lucid dreams and how we can enter altered states in lucid dreams and how this can also enhance our waking lives. Yeah, so so talk to us a little bit about the void. I mean, I, I be, you know, having been around this this kind of crew of, of folks a while, I kind of, I got what you were saying and what that, uh, I, um, so anyway, just, can you just sort of spell out what, what the void is and why we should care, why we should be in, in curious about it rather than a little bit, uh, you know, put off by it. <laughs> ah, well, some people are put off by the void. Uh, basically, I mean, uh, the void is, um, is a term that lucid dreamers use to describe the sensation of floating in what appears to be infinite space. It could be black space. It could be luminous space. Um, and some people find this very worrying because uh, they think, well, <laughs> where am I? How do I get into a normal dream again? Um, they might feel they have no body, so they have this sensation of bodilessness. Um, so it can be a quite a strange experience to start with. And the void can also, uh, it can also involve sensations which seem quite strange, like being flung around through space. Um, and uh, yeah, so some people say, this was a scary experience, I don't want to have it again. Um, but in fact, it is also a responsive space. So if you're scared in any kind of dream space, it, things are not necessarily going to improve, you know, because the, the dream space reacts to you. Mm -hmm. And so if you learn, which I did through having so many of these experiences uh, when I was at university, if you learn to relax and and just say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in this space. It's strange, but it's also kind of fascinating. Um, and go with the flow of it. Then you can find um, really a, a very beautiful experiences. And it's the perfect place to meditate because you don't have your physical body, which is so distracting. Or, you know, you always have aches and pains when you sit down to, to meditate. You start realizing, oh, you know, my back's a bit uncomfortable or oh, I've got a, an itch on my cheek. You know, whatever it is, the body distracts you. But in that space, in that lucid suspension, you, you don't have any of these distractions. And so that enables you to go into a very deep meditative experience. And it can lead to, well, to experiences of oneness, you know, so non-dual experiences, total interconnectedness and a sense of freedom, expansiveness. And this, this carries over into waking life. It's very refreshing having that sort of experience in the void. That's a really good point. You know, your knees don't ache. <laughs> and if they do, you're wondering, why are my knees aching? I'm lucid in my dream. I'm lying down. I don't, they shouldn't. I'm not, but I, yeah. this also brings up one interesting point that I, I wanted to ask you about. And uh, in your article, you talk about the different types of control. I mean, this the idea of just sort of letting go and 
um, or or just having some sort of sporadic control, like uh, uh, um, making things happen in your dream and then sort of letting is sitting back and seeing what happens. And you also make the great point that just being aware that we are dreaming changes the dream content. And I I, th I think there's been this idea in about lucid dreaming that lucid dreaming is when you can sort of take control of your dream. And we've done a pretty good job, I feel like, over the past couple interviews to, to debunk that a little bit. But I wanted to talk more about, like, how does being aware that we are dreaming change or alter or affect in any way the content of the dream? Ah, it changes it in all sorts of ways. For example, if you have a nightmare and you become lucid in the nightmare, often simply the act of becoming conscious and knowing that this is a dream environment, um, it can diminish your fear. And when your fear is diminished, then the nightmare image would also change and transform, usually into something you know a lot more positive. So that's one way in which it can really, really change the dream. And I think this whole uh, the whole issue of control in lucid dreams is is it's a fascinating one. I mean, you can never control every aspect of the dream, um, and that's one thing that I think some people overlook. Um, and I still get into conversations these days with psychoanalysts, for example, who say, uh, "Oh, lucid dreaming is all about control, and uh, that goes against the grain of psychoanalysis." and uh, it's all about the ego taking control, but it really doesn't have to be like that. Um, my PhD research identified four different um, levels of engagement with the lucid dream. And the first two are, are, are passive ones. One is passive observation. And in that, you, just, you can just stand in your lucid dream and just watch the beauty of the lucid dream as it unfolds. And that's a, a, very, a very creative state of mind to enter. And I think I think you know people people perhaps don't consider that when they think about lucid dreams. It's all about the control aspect. And the next and oh, the one thing that I noticed when that when I was researching passive observation lucid dreams was that simply the the gaze of the lucid dreamer can alter the dream content. So whether or not you're trying to change and alter the lucid dream seems irrelevant because the it's such a thought responsive environment. But as soon as you have an emotion or a judgmental thought, <laughs> then the dream will, re will respond. And in one dream, I became lucid standing in some woods. And I looked around. I thought, I'm not going to alter anything. I'm just going to see what happens in this dream. And I noticed um, a red buttercup. Uh, hmm, red buttercup. Hmm, OK. And I deliberately didn't think buttercup shouldn't be red. I looked away and just kind of carried on. And I looked back. And the buttercup had turned yellow. So <laughs> the dream had reacted to my you know, unspoken thought or assumption that this was actually the wrong color. And it had turned it into the right color. So um, the lucid gaze changes the dream content, whether we want to control anything or not. And, yeah, and so the idea of um, giving an impulse to the dream, this is sort of sporadic control, I call it, that can be extremely creative and, and, and absolutely wonderful just to give an initial input, like say, um, what should I do for my next piece of artwork? Just ask a question you know, to the dream and then wait and see what the dream comes up with. I mean, it's so spontaneous and surprising that it's, it's just wonderful to see what happens. So I think that's a very nice level of engagement. Yeah. So that would mean patience. How do you spell that? I'm not familiar with this concept. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for that. That's, that's a great introduction. And if people want to know more about you know, the four types of, of, of engagement, they can, yeah. they can pick up this book and read your article is what I think they can do. <laughs> that's right. Oh, someone actually contacted me today to say that they just read this chapter. Uh, in this in this book, they're going through all the chapters, and um, he decided to try to meditate in a lucid dream. And uh, he remembered what I said about closing your eyes; so you don't get too distracted by all this incredible dream imagery that that comes up. And uh, and he did. He closed his eyes and he started to meditate. And immediately he heard a voice saying, "Your unconscious can kill you." 
Oh. And so he wrote to me on Facebook and said, oh, how would you, you know, do you think, can you make some comments on this? And I said, well, if it were my dream, the guy would have said, your unconscious can kill and it can cure. Because the unconscious can do both. If you look at illness, the way that illness is uh, generated in the body um, by unresolved traumas or blocks and so on, then you can get ill, in a sense, from things that are not being released from the unconscious. And conversely, the unconscious can cure. And this is why, another reason why I love lucid dreaming, because if you enter into this deep conscious conversation with your dreaming mind, then you can heal yourself in various ways. So I think there's, there's just so much more to explore with this all. Well, this is a really good segue to our next contributor, uh, Shane Dahl, who uh, has done some fascinating um, work. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background, Shane, and, and what your chapter uh, talks about. Yeah, so um, I started a master's program at Trent University in uh, 2002, oh, sorry, two, 2010. And uh, I proposed to do ethnographic research on the Blood Indian Reserve in southwestern Alberta, uh, exploring the possible application of lucid dreaming in uh, shamanism. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't so sure um, if there was any direct application of lucid dreaming in shamanistic practice, but I had, uh, over the course of maybe six years, developed a pretty uh, strong relationship with the community out there. And I remember actually the very first time I, I asked about dreams uh, when I was on the reserve. I went to a sweat lodge. I'm sure you're all familiar with the sweat lodge. And I, I was very, you know, I was like 20 years old and I asked the medicine man, I said, you know, I had this dream of a wolf. What does it mean? <laughs> and he just looked at me, he's like, I think you're going to win the lottery. Buy a ticket. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, uh, uh, as the years progressed and I became closer with uh, a community out there, I realized the significance of dreams and I thought uh, there's not much written about it and it would be really amazing to go, to go research it. And I had read uh, a fair number of books about the anthropology of dreaming and about lucid dreaming and I was really excited. I had, uh, you know... I. I'm an occasional lucid dreamer these days, not not so much, but I, I, I have a few experiences in the void myself. <laughs> Having, uh, I remember one dream, I, I was in my backyard and I like unzipped the shed and fell through into a void. I, I was thinking about that when you were talking. And I just <laughs> floated there. It didn't bother me too much, but uh, and no, voice, no voice spoke to me. But um, yeah, anyway, so I, so I have a long-term interest in dreams and I did this this research project but when I got to the reserve in the summer of 2011 uh, people were very willing to share with me about dreams but they're also very very cautious mm -hmm. uh, and they kept telling me that they're cautious for my own good and uh, I didn't quite understand you know I didn't take them that seriously I was a bit skeptical because it's just dreams after all right mm -hmm. but they live in a totally different they have a totally different uh, philosophy of what the, what it means to dream because it's not just your psych psychology it's your soul departing from your body into a spirit realm that is populated by kind spirits who are, will help you if you are willing to make the appropriate sacrifice and it's also filled with uh, I call pathogenic uh, beings who kind of want to suck the life force out of you and or your family members. Mm -hmm. And so they, when I first was asking about dreams in a, in a more in-depth way for my research, they were very cautious because they knew that by exposing me to that level of information about dreaming, they were also going to kind of expose, open me up to uh, become vulnerable to both forces. And so mm -hmm. through my field work, which wasn't very long actually at that particular time. It was about a month and a half only. Uh, but leading up to that was about six years. So I have, uh, I drew on a lot of experience, but the interviewing and stuff like that was really intensive for about a month and a half. Mm -hmm. But that during that short period of time, I had some 
really amazing and some really terrifying dreams uh, <laughs> of these kind of negative beings coming after me. And it could have been, uh, it could have been incubated by all these warnings that I received. Even though I was skeptical, my unconscious right. uh, just kind of absorbed th those threats. And you know, this is one psychological reading of it. But in any case, uh, I had a few nightmares that I, when I I woke up terrified, like I'm a, <laughs> I couldn't go back to sleep. And then I, you know, a couple days later, I I tried to sleep again, and I I couldn't sleep because uh, I had another terrifying nightmare of. I don't think I included included them those nightmares in this uh, chapter that's in the book, but I did write about them in my master's thesis, uh, which is can be found on that website there. But um, I had dreams of being sliced up, <laughs> like being okay. butchered. Uh, <laughs> And uh, not just that, but also there was one dream I had. It's kind of personal, but you know, this is a dream talk radio, so. Wait, it's uh, all. It's this is just the internet. It's just the internet. Yeah, it's just the internet. <laughs> My students will see this ten years from now and probably make fun of me in class. But anyway, so I, I was looking into a mirror, and I saw my face, but it started twitching like really in really intensely and kind of it, it looked really scary and somehow there was like a voice that was inside that version of me that jumped into out of the mirror into my uh, consciousness and it I can't remember exactly what it said but it was something the feeling was something of like being possessed by a really evil creature <laughs> and from there I, I had really like I woke up after that and I had really twisted thoughts about, uh, you know, strange urges that I can't really explain, like to do like maybe violent things or to hurt myself or some, some weird kind of urges which are not normal to me. It took me a long time actually in order to overcome this, uh, we, you know, these series of nightmares and this kind of weird urges to do strange things. Mm -hmm. I actually had to have a fast. I had to, fa I had to stop. I had to cure it with the kind of Blackfoot yeah. methods, uh, and it, the fasting worked, and so it was kind of it stopped. And but I used all that experience uh, to write my master's thesis. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why some of my informants, uh, some of my Blackfoot informants, told me that this was happening to me, was because I was uh, sharing. Hmm, Dream. I was sharing knowledge about dreams with an uh, anonymous audience, and the problem with that is that there's no reciprocity between me and you know the readers of my master's thesis. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm kind of taking their secret knowledge and publishing it in a very like I th I think I I was on the right side. Like I I don't think I overstepped my ethical obligations mm -hmm. to everybody on the reserve, but it was very close to the edge of what I was allowed to share and what I was allowed mm -hmm. not to. So that anxiety of, am I crossing the line here, manifested, I think, in, in these sorts of terrifying nightmares and stuff. So uh, I have a very you know, positive experience of lucid dreaming, uh, as Claire was describing. Like I remember before that re the research, uh, that was my kind of experience of lucid dreaming. It was very positive and spiritually mm -hmm. uplifting. I've had many great lucid dreams. But after that experience, I realized that um, we operate in a very specific ontology, like a kind of with a very specific approach to reality in our own psychology right. that, that uh, actually I speak about, or Roger Lohman and I speak about in our chapter, uh, in, in this volume as well, that you know, lucid dreaming is a, is a cultural variable. Like it, it changes for different people, right? So, um, in our kind of the Western approach to lucid dreaming is very positive, most mostly very positive mm -hmm. and uh, spiritually uplifting. But if you start to uh, endeavor into uh, the dream worlds of of uh, you know Canadian First Nations people or mm -hmm you know, different societies throughout throughout the, the world, uh, you're going to, you know, there's some 
other level of uh, understanding that you need to have before you enter it. So my chapter actually stands as a warning against you know just diving into the with a bit of a romantic or a very po overly positive approach to, to dreaming because it's not safe for everyone I don't think mm -hmm. and uh, I included the case of Jared Loeffner as well in my in my mm -hmm. chapter as a Western case of somebody interested in lucid dreaming who ended up uh, you know becoming a bit psych psychotic or right. Well, you know, the interesting thing to me, one of the interesting things to me about your chapter um, was the, just the whole idea of, it, this is something that most Westerners, maybe I can generalize that much, don't really have an experience of, is being in the, in the container of an existing culture that's so old and that has specific traditions and also mm -hmm. specific boundaries around experience. And... Um, and sharing that experience. Exactly, exactly. And you're right. I mean, there's so many cultures around the world and throughout history who have, that have strictures around how old you need to be. Like I think you mentioned, you know, the, the midlife type of thing. You have to have a, a body of experience and a psychic container that can, that can somehow manage and cope with it. And um, I guess, Mike, Mike here, I, I had another question I was going to ask you, but now I'm actually interested in, like, how that was, like, what, was it just fasting? Like, what was the prescription that you received for dealing with the dreams, the frightening dreams that you were having? Um, it's really about your personal protection that you, that you ha have built for yourself against negative forces and in black in a blackfoot uh, spirituality religion fasting is a very uh, common way to to acquire that protection mm -hmm. and acquire that kind of yeah because it, it you're purifying yourself as well as you're kind of offer it's a it's a kind of auto sacrifice and that's maybe another conversation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, by fasting, you're kind of empowering your yourself. That's you know, if you look ar around the world, asceticism is a way of becoming spiritually empowering, empowering yourself. So, I I thought by maybe cleansing my body and my mind for a day or two, I could and focusing specifically on the problem of let's stop these terrifying dreams. Right. That that maybe I could uh, you know I smudged as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Smudging is another way of cleansing your your body. Mm -hmm. I thought if I if I did that, then I should be I should be well equipped to you know stop this because I'm in control. I should not mm -hmm. feel like I'm not in control. Mm -hmm. And I started to lose control, which was you know I mean it was good for educational purposes to lose control of my right. mind a little bit and then gain it back. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so I think fasting that was just a personal choice of mine. It was not. Um, it, didn't ha it was not a big formal event. Oh. I just decided that's what I should do because mm -hmm. that's the Blackfoot way to cure some kind of mm -hmm. ailment. Mm -hmm. And uh, last, I want to ask you briefly about the other, um, the, this idea of the nocebo. And you talk about this completely yeah. other culture and uh, sort of a combination of, of belief, of mythology, cultural mythology, and genetics. Can you explain a little bit about that? Oh yeah, that's that's difficult territory, and that was one of the questions in my uh, my master's thesis defense. That was the the big the big one. Um, yeah, you know the science is still uh, I think premature in terms of the placebo effect and the nocebo effect, because the what to the best of my knowledge, um, people generally think of the placebo effect. As being initiated by you know a doctor giving a sugar pill instead of a, mm -hmm. a pill with medicinal properties. Now, if you think about the, the placebo effect, works uh, when people believe that this pill has the power to heal them, right? But that's just a pill. That's a very you know undramatic uh, positive belief. It's just, I'm having a pill, but you can imagine the the placebo effect that a really intense uh, shamanistic doctoring ceremony with drums pounding, people singing at the top of their lungs. I mean, you can imagine the placebo effect that that would have compared to a pill, mm -hmm. right? 
and also there's dreaming is is a very fully embodied experience so I'm sure that also has a more uh, intense impact than a sugar pill uh, and it could go either way it could be a very positive impact it could be a very negative impact the scholar that's working on the connection between uh, like the relationship between symbolic uh, thought uh, neurology and the immune system would be Michael Winkleman Mm. And he's written about it in his book uh, on shamanism. He's got the second edition in 2010. He goes to the science of the the technical science of it. So I would recommend anybody interested in that topic to consult him. I just used that mm. research to suggest that you know perhaps dreaming uh, has some powers that we're not quite we're not quite uh, we don't understand the full extent of the impact that a positive or a negative dream can have on our immune system. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, thanks for that. Uh, um, I've got a question for, for the panel after we, after we go through everybody and it's, it's kind of tied into that idea, although it's a little bit broader. It's this idea of, of health and, mm. and dreaming or dreaming in general and health broadly, broadly speaking. But um, next, I want to bring in our final panelist, uh, Dr. Fariba Bogzaran. And uh, Fariba, thank you for your patience, obviously. <laughs> Very enjoyable to hear everybody. <laughs> Can you tell us about uh, hyperspace lucidity? What This is a fascinating, uh, uh, I, I'm going to say chapter and leave it at that and have you explain more about what, what that is. Well, uh, first I need to give a little bit about my background um, yes, before jumping into hyperspace lucidity because um, it's, it's within a particular context. Um, I see lucid dreaming as a practice and I see it as a lifetime practice and uh, for me um, I started to be totally conscious of it in a sense of being able to participate or co-participate in lucid dreaming since age uh, very young when, but it was particularly seven age seven that happened but uh, this ex these experiences I had in childhood sort of formed who I am today so it um, it sort of informed my whole life uh, that's why I call it it is a practice and it's a personal practice and of course you know I did write both my master thesis and PhD dissertation on the topic. Now my master thesis was experiencing the divine in lucid dream state and my PhD was images of the lucid mind. Now um, the first one, uh, the master thesis, uh, really brought me into this uh, particular state of consciousness within lucid dreaming where I'm calling it hyperspace lucidity. And that came out of, um, I did that quantitative research, scientific, that was when I was working in a sleep laboratory at Stanford with uh, Stephen LeBurge. And at the time, I have to say, by the way, uh, it's a delight to see lucid dreaming sort of in a mainstream. Everybody talks about it. Whereas in the 80s, when we were working in the laboratory, when we would go to conferences and talked about lucid dreaming, we were very much... Um, um, the, the base, uh, how, how would I say people really even in the field of dream studies people were not paying attention to lucid dreaming so it was really a um, hard time to try to convince people about this phenomenon let alone convince that there is such a thing such experiences as void as shamanic practices and lucid dreaming as meditation as hyperspace lucidity it was very, very difficult to convince them about lucid dreaming, let alone these experiences. Uh, so for me, uh, uh, this hyperspace lucidity happened because I did many um, in dream incubation myself when I was doing my uh, study uh, on spiritual experiences in lucid dreaming. And also other people who were part of the study, they were having some experiences beyond the, uh, the uh, sort of the normal narrative of a dream. They were going beyond that um, uh, threshold, so to speak. Uh, phenomena of light was part of it. Phenomena of void was part of it. Void and light, uh, 
Mm -hmm. They each have, when you, we go inside of them, they all have their own subset of experiences. They are not all the same. Um, so I, um, I decided to not use a psychological term for it because every word we use, there's some pre-assumption pre about what that word mm -hmm. uh, is about. So mm -hmm. I, I, I like to go outside of psychological terms sometimes to term something. So hyperspace lucidity, it felt that it didn't have, it wasn't laden with either religion uh, terms or psychological terms. So that's what I use. But it is experiences beyond space and beyond time. Mm -hmm. But within that uh, experience, there are many layers of experiences, including uh, the, uh, the unity consciousness, being inside the void, being inside spaces that are unfamiliar, um, and within that uh, uh, layer, there are many, many, many other layers. Um, so, I, um, for my chapter, I decided actually to do a retrospective of my research. Because I found that when I'm, uh, I've lived long enough now to know that I'm a visionary. Because whenever I would do something, people don't get it. And then 10 years later, they get it. <laughs> They get what I'm doing. So uh, what I decided to do is to bring it all together as a retrospective. So the first study I did was highly scientific, hard science. Actually, I used quantitative research to do this study. And the theme is the same throughout all of my research. And my interest is what if, if we ask the big question when we are in a lucid dream? Hmm. What happens? How does our mind respond when we ask the big existential question. And I'm interested to just witness to see what the mind presents. And um, I take it that the mind is much, much more complex than we know it is because I'm a lucid dreamer. So I've had the experience and I'm sure that the panelists, they all have had the experience, they know that. Um, I tend to take the indigenous um, way of approaching it too. Uh, maybe because of my cultural background, maybe because of my 30 years of studying shamanism and being with the shamanic uh, uh, communities, and or maybe because of my 10 years of study with Tibetan Buddhists about dream yoga. However, I have uh, sort of did my uh, development within this this topic. Uh, it led me to certain people a certain path and those paths they all do uh, warn about what Shane was talking about there's all these warnings there about um, how to proceed when you want to go deeper and deeper into this state of consciousness and I think that um, when one is taking lucid dreaming seriously it's really taking it as a, as a whole practice. It's not just that, well, I want to go and have a lucid dream, but it's uh, looking at the whole psychological, emotional, and physical. That's all part of it. Uh, so that's, um, uh, in, my in my chapter, I focused on the different way in which, different methodology in which I approached the same topic. And uh, often people think that I'm just, you know, I'm, she's a painter. But, you know, I'm uh, painting because it's a mode of communication. Mm -hmm. When words fall short in description, when we say this experience is ineffable, then I go into images. Then I go into shamanic uh, um, sounds and drumming and other things. It's the way of trying to um, really get inside that experience sometimes even bringing it into waking and mm. experiencing it there. So that's why I use art. Um, it's like a tool. It's like a communication tool that I use. Uh, so uh, yeah, in the chapter, I, I went from the hard, hardcore scientific quantitative research to qualitative research, and then I went to art-based research. And the last chapter is very hard to understand right now. But I think that later on is going to come about because uh, how could an installation be scientific? Yeah. Uh, 
but it is scientific because I, I uh, the way I install the show and then people come and say, oh, I feel something. Well, then I ask, well, how do you feel? What is it that is invoking in you? So that's, um, to me, is that uh, art-based research is as valid as qualitative, well, it's a qualitative research, yeah. uh, but it's addressing different things. Right. You know, I, I find it so interesting. Yes, hyperspace is not, it's not a psychological term, it's not a religious term, but it manages to, to place your concept of lucid practice, a lifetime practice, in a very culturally specific context, which is because hyperspace is all about science fiction. I mean, if you look at, you know, what people, they think of Star Wars or Star Trek, and it's this sort of Futurama kind of a thing. And so it's funny to me that, yes, it comes from math and physics, but most people understand it in the terms of this very strong uh, cultural myth of, I would say, maybe the last 50, 100 years or so. So uh, it, uh, I don't know if you thought about that, but it uh, seemed actually seems somewhat um, appropriate. Yeah, I. it's very interesting. I, I, um, I came up with the idea of hyperspace when I was listening to um, a, a talk in a, in a lucidity conference um, uh, a long time ago. Uh, someone uh, just uh, it spaced me right now who the name of the person was. It will come to me. Um, he was giving, giving some talks around physics and dreaming. Mm -hmm. And then um, at the time, this was 1990 or 1991, uh, it wasn't into the internet and all the you know, talk about hyperspace now is everywhere. But it wasn't so used then. It was uh -huh. just used a little bit. Uh, so I used it, but then I sort of stuck with the term. Uh -huh. But I, I get amused by it, you know, how it's used. And, uh, but for me, is, um, is any terminology you use there is, is laden with yeah. different kind of meaning. Like, for instance, we, we talked about, uh, Claire was talking about, and earlier we were talking about void. Yes. Now, void is, uh, is, is within the Buddhist con uh, tradition has a particular meaning. No? In, in other traditions might have particular meaning. Um, light. Uh, would have a certain kind of inner light might have certain kind of connotations, um, and then it's it limits sometimes certain uh, experiences or certain um, yeah certain experiences. But one thing I wanted to mention is that I noticed everyone who was giving a talk that I was so delighted and and I was delighted when I saw Ryan's book and I read some of the chapters in here is that now, because there's so many people are interested in lucid dreaming and they are also sharing their own personal experiences and they're going farther with what is in literature, that shows to me, as someone who has done so many years of personal and worked with many people, I've been teaching lucid dreaming since 84, so you can imagine how many students I've had, right. that there is a reality there because whatever is experienced today, whoever said about, they all are really true reality within lucid dreaming. Like what Claire talked about, your thought makes an action, it, it just manifests. It just, it's true. Mm -hmm. it, you, you try it and it happens. But I think that the more people share their experiences, we can understand the theme that there is a phenomena there, that uh, uh, there's a phenomena that we all share. And it has a particular reality. Mm -hmm. That thing that indigenous people have have explored it for so many years, and they know it. Uh, I see shamanism as science. You know, I've been drumming for thirty years, and I know it's a science. Shamanic drumming is a science because if you beat for about nine uh, nine minutes, four to seven beats per second. The brain wave changes from alpha. You start going from beta to alpha brain wave, and then bursts of theta brain wave. So you know that they have practiced this for thousands of years, and they know it, and they really, really worked with it, and they know what what this this uh, these experiences can do and are about. That's why they're a little bit um, cautious who they share it with. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure that the person is well practiced. Uh, because 
it's, uh, it's giving something that it might have some other consequences with it. So it's, uh, I, I'm more in that camp. It's like if, if people want to learn lucid dreaming, there is many different layers about it. But I think that let's look at it in a much larger context, not just, oh, I want to go and have a lucid dream. Right. Uh, in my classes, I always say, well, it's all about lucid waking. Are we ready to wake up? Mm-hmm. Now here, in every levels in our in our life, right. relationship, work, everything, it's right. transforms. So it's a it's a much bigger uh, uh, practice than we, we might imagine it is. Ah, lovely. Thank you, Fariba. That was that was very insightful. Um, I have so many questions that we could keep going on this, but I know uh, we've got to wrap up in a few minutes. But I wanted to go through and ask a more general question, and, and the, the reason why I'm asking it is this. I mean, so I've gone far and, you know, near and far and searching in different cultures and different spiritual traditions and so on and so forth, and to me, the litmus test of any group is always, you know, how good is the life, right? It's not necessarily how esoteric are the practices or what is the promise, but, you know, how are people really living? Is this a generous um, culture like uh, Shane in your chapter you talked about? You know, or is this an ethical person, uh, you know, courageous, giving, and so on and so forth, community-minded? And I, I guess what I'm interested in asking each of you is just a quick little thought on how to stay healthy, like how lucid dreaming um, I mean, we've talked some about how it can throw us off balance or come, make us come back into balance. But what I guess what I'm asking is, what's interesting you at this moment in uh, around lucid dreaming and health? And it could be personal health, like how to maintain personal health, or it could be family health or the health of communities. So how, what, what gets us to be vibrant and resilient individuals and societies? <laughs> Hope that's broad enough. And Ryan, I wanted to start with you since you've been you've been sitting there um, listening all this time. Cool. It's a great question, and uh, it's something I've given a lot of thought to over the years. And actually, like Shane, I had uh, a spell of um, of bad nightmares. That 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 cleansing is what really uh, did the trick. And I was actually in the middle of a very intense lucid dreaming incubation um, that was lasting months. Um, this is what my master's thesis was on. And I hit a period of, of very powerful dreams that were beyond my ability to comprehend them. I, I wasn't integrating them. And I began to somatize the imagery. And, and because this is the internet and forever, um, let's talk about my indigestion. <laughs> uh, essentially, my digestive system kind of broke down for um, for <laughs> for a period of a week or longer, uh, and it was terrible. Uh, and and I realized, and I I'm so lucky because I actually had a container of spiritual advisors, one of whom was Fariba, um, to about what should I do in this kind of situation. And and um, and and my advisors told me you basically need to need to cleanse um, in a number of ways. Nature, you know, getting out of nature, watching what your food intake is doing, backing off from the practices, grounding yourself, um, kind of coming back, you know, to the ground a little bit. Uh, and, and I did fast, and then I did a salt cleanse, and, and at the end of it, um, it came time to eat again, and I had a series of powerful lucid dreams that answered the questions that the earlier nightmares had posed in a healing, very healing way that was personally healing and absolutely just kind of rippled through my life. Uh, I think I'll be probably looking at these dreams, you know, for decades. Uh, They're very powerful. Uh, And so that really woke me up to this concept of of lucid dreaming is powerful medicine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that is the overall arching theme that one of the themes that you can really bring out of this volume, uh, the second volume of the Lucid Dreaming Collection, is that um, between the nocebo effects and the wonderful creative 
you know, in healing purposes, uh, you have to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wrote an ebook about about some of this, um, and it's the Lucid Immersion Guidebook, and I and I wrote that uh, in 2012, and I basically used that experience, my negative experience, and and what I learned through lucid dreaming um, scholars about how to set a secure container for doing lucid dreaming. It's basically taking lucid dreaming seriously um, as a psycho-spiritual practice, knowing when's the right time to delve in, knowing when to back off, having a support network in place when you decide to do this. It's kind of like, you know, it's risky to go into the underworld, just like it's risky to go solo backpacking. but we have the urge to do it anyway. But when we go solo backpacking, we tell our friends where we're going to be camping and when we're going to be returning. And this is something that we need to be doing with our dreams as well. So I don't, you know, when I think about some of the work that came out of Shane's experiences in Diana Raboli's chapter, um, which is another chapter which talks about, uh, about how lucid dreaming is involved with dark sorcery around the world. Uh, to me, this isn't meant to scare the world into, oh, lucid dreaming is creepy, but rather that it's strong and we need to take it seriously. Um, and, and, and that's what I you know, teach in the Lucid Immersion Guidebook is, is basically how to set those parameters, set a strong container. And part of that, which I think we've also talked about in this um, conversation, is about knowing about your own beliefs and, and having explored them um, and having your own ways of calming yourself down and having a relaxation response, mm-hmm. knowing what to do when it hits the fan, what can you lean into? These are really important questions to have answered. Wow, great. That's really fabulous. Thank you so much. Um, Claire, what would you say, <laughs> again, your thumbnail sketch, something about health and dreaming? Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm fascinated by the healing potential of lucid dreams. I'm, I'm writing a book now on lucid dreaming, and three of my chapters are dedicated to healing because I just, I just couldn't stop. You know, <laughs> the psychological healing, physical healing of yourself, and then physical healing of others. Just investigating, well, what's possible, and uh, listening to what other people have have done in their lucid dreams, and contributing my own experience too. Now, um, oh, there are so many areas I could go into, I'll, so I'll just mention a couple briefly. Um, I'm very interested in the dream body. What we do in the dream body can have an effect on our waking body. And I think the most powerful lucid dreams for me in terms of healing have been dreams where I have experienced healing in my dream body, a sort of buzzing kind of yoga energy. And I've woken up in my bed and the energy has been in my physical body. It's still there. And I think that's, for me, that's a sign, really, that the lucid dream has done some very deep cellular work uh, on me in some sense. And, and you really, after a dream like that, um, things change. It's just, it's like a switch has been flipped. And the path to healing and wholeness has, has sort of opened up again. So the dream body very important. Um, Also I think um, in terms of of being a a healthier person or a more compassionate person, I think engaging with dream figures uh, can help you with this Um, because, well it depends what your outlook is, but if you take the psychological approach that uh, everything in the dream is is part of yourself, um, dream violence becomes kind of pointless. <laughs> you, uh, you sort of tend to, to want to have more of a conversation with your dream figures, talk to them, work things out. And I think generally our dreaming mind, not just lucid dreams, but dreams in general, uh, the dreaming mind is, if we would allow it to be, it could be like our best friend, you know, our wisest friend, the friend that's always there to help us towards greater wholeness and healing. And I think there are so many dreams which warn of illness, and if they're ignored, well, the illness is going to progress, you know. But if we're in contact with our dreaming minds, and lucid dreaming helps this contact because we become conscious in the dream, um, then we can we can work towards healing of the body as well. Uh, There's so many reports of people who um, have just known from a dream that they've got cancer somewhere in their body. 
and they've gone to the doctor and asked for a biopsy and the doctor said no no there's nothing there there's no need for it and then they have an even more precise dream showing exactly where the doctor has to put the biopsy needle and they tell this to the doctor and make make the doctor do it and yes they find the the, the cancer I mean it's all about learning to listen mm. and so lucid dreaming really allows us to have this conversation with a very deep wise part of ourselves and I think that in itself if we engage in this conversation then we're bound to to be on this path to to greater health and wholeness oh that's great it's very important just learning to listen yeah yeah no agenda just listening like that's that. right yes Thanks. and I mean lucid dreams um, they do wake you up in your life the more awake you become in, the li in your life the more awake but you become in your dreams yeah. and as I as I said earlier with meditation in lucid dreams you you go deep so fast in a lucid dream because you don't have the usual distractions of pain the physical body and that helps your daily meditation practice so it's much easier to go into a deep state of relaxation and that's also a healing state um, and lucid dreaming I think for me as well I think it helps me to recognize beauty more in my waking life because in a lucid dream there's so much beauty uh, I mean if you look at things the details um, the colors, the shapes, the feel of it all, it's multi-sensory, it's, it's just amazing and so I find much more in my waking life that I have moments of waking lucidity just just looking and or experiencing things so that's a constant reminder to wake up and to notice mm. beauty and when you notice beauty you tend to feel happier because it's lovely <laughs> so it, it kind of I found it really helpful to to get deeply into into lucid dreaming it's definitely oh, Help me to to get become happier and and yeah healthier I guess. Yeah. Thank you so much, Claire. Um, Want to uh, ask Shane where where are you at with this question? Having had such intense experience uh, and moving through it, where what's your thoughts on dreams and health, whether personal yeah. or collective? That's a really tough question. Uh, but I, I think it's, uh, of course, relative to each person. Um, Claire sounds to me like a really... I, I Actually, I haven't met somebody so in touch with their dreams. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's very... You seem very like an integrated person. And um, I think your, your happiness in, in your waking life translates into the kind of dreams that you're able to have, which sound really amazing. But I mm -hmm. think... A different person like me at that very stressful time, uh, the stress and anxiety of uh, my waking life translated into the dream state. So the relationship, mm -hmm. I think, between health and dreaming is is a very uh, mutually responsive relationship. So yeah, I mean, I have having said, um, could I could I'm sorry, I I'm sorry, no, Claire, I'm sorry. We we have to keep moving. Oh, okay, all right. We'll talk <laughs> another time. We'll talk another time. <laughs> Uh, can I finish with a, just an anecdote? Is it? Yeah, please. Yes, please. Yeah. So, uh, for example, uh, one night I had one of those dream lucid dreams where I asked the big uh, existential question uh, that Frigo is talking about. I, I looked up in the sky and I was like, you know, send me a message or something like that. I can't remember exactly what I said, but from the sky, I saw like from the starry sky a sweat lodge like slowly floated down to the ground into the forest in the distance so I I walked over there and I went in I crawled in I remember very vividly I was I was like wow this is you know gonna be something right who's in there so I went into the sweat lodge and I waited and uh, I heard somebody outside and then they came in and it was a uh, a guy in raggedy clothes with a with a bottle of whiskey in his hand <laughs> I was like you're not supposed to be in here with alcohol. That's totally like unacceptable. You know, there's a rule that you're not supposed to go to a sweat lodge uh, unless you've been clean from, you know, substance like alcohol or drugs or anything like that for like you know four days minimum. So I was like, you're not supposed to be in here, and and he got kind of aggressive. So we went outside, and he, uh, I told him to go away, but he left, and he came running back at me with a with his bottle in his hand. He was gonna whack me on the head. And uh, I block. Luckily, I blocked him, and I did like a judo throw. <laughs> and that that was that. That that dream was over. But I woke up, 
and I realized that uh, before I had went to bed, I, I had I was drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. and uh, the message seemed to be, you know, when you can't pose those big questions in your yeah. dream if you have been drinking, you know, because you're supposed to be clean before you go on this kind of uh, spiritual uh, quest, you know, or ask these big right. questions in your dream. So anyway, the the relationship I think between my waking self and my dream self was very apparent at that time that you know if your your waking body is healthy and and you're vitalized and taking care of yourself and healthy then your dream state will probably respond to that but if you're you know doing things which either consciously or subconsciously you know are not not right or not healthy for your body then it's going to respond in your dreams whether or not you take the psychological or the uh, you know, fully kind of spiritual perspective on what the dream space is. Mm. And also, I mean, you have that beautiful uh, image of the, your dream as a sweat lodge. You know, the dreaming mind as this sweat lodge is sort of this macrocosm, microcosm of of consciousness in this then this little specific. So that's a lovely dream, Shane. Yeah, but it turned out not so good when I got <laughs> to block a guy from smashing me over the head with a beer bo- or a whiskey bottle. <laughs> that's that's when judo comes in handy. So yeah, judo, yeah. you know, talk about preparation for lucid dreaming. <laughs> All right, so Fariba, I want to um, turn to you before we leave, and uh, what what are your thoughts about dreams and health? Um. Well, I, I, I agree with uh, Claire that they are um, incredibly helpful for uh, for all sorts of uh, different um, uh, bodily uh, uh, healing, and there are many anecdotes about it around, especially uh, lucid dreaming. Um, I have to say, I always encourage my students who are doing dissertation to, to focus on dreams and healing because that area needs to be really... Um, expanded because we have many uh, examples of it. From my point of view, I don't see all dreams, uh, uh, they're all big dreams, they're all important dreams. I see there are specific dreams, there are different types of dreams and that's very important to me because often we talk about dreams so general. Um, And for me it has a lot to do with trust and awareness. Having a deep trust in this um, state of consciousness that we spend every night there, that uh, when we are deeply connected with it, there are those messages that come through, precognitive messages yeah. around um, health and healing, and then awareness. For me, the pa- practice of lucid dreaming has a lot to do with how we can become aware in waking. So once that awareness, that self-reflectiveness happens both in lucid dreaming and in waking, we will see this amazing uh, doors opening up in waking that makes us more and more uh, aware of um, uh, our well-being and however that is around health because there are psychological health, there are emotional health, there are physical health. I mean, that's a, that's a big question you're asking, just really going in depth into what do we mean by health? Right. Um, there are many different levels of health, yes. uh, but I think that is is that self-reflectiveness coming in waking and in dreaming. It's the first step for us to even question the inquiry. It's very very important. It's about what is this uh, uh, state of consciousness that is so extraordinary, and and there are so many people having these experiences. How about if I um, uh, explore it a little bit? I think I'm. Uh, uh, I'm going. In, I'm so sorry. I live in the countryside, so then I'm getting off and on with the internet. So <laughs> well, you, I think it. You think it. You're, the picture on this end is fine. Okay. So, um, uh, so for me, it, it's uh, awareness and um, really uh, self-reflecting about what's happening yeah. in waking, and um, and seeing what areas in in one's life that needs healing because it might be you know might be really fit physically but it might be something emotional or something psychological 
but just really questioning. So for me, inquiry is a lot uh, uh, relates to lucid dream practice. A lot of inquiry, and then see what happens. So I can't really say what. Yes, uh, uh, dreams are uh, for uh, health and healing. But yes, they do come. But it's we have to look at all the different layers and levels. Uh, it's a, it's a, in, in my dream, in my uh, book, Integral Dreaming with uh, Daniel Delaurier, we really expanded the complexity of dream studies. It's not simple. It's really complex. So um, I think these questions are wonderful questions to look at the, its complexity, yeah. and and how dreams are complex because we are complex, and the way we approach dreams needs to be multi-layered. So that's yeah. uh, for me is the way I look at it. Uh, that's great. Thank you so much. Yes, I think you're right. I think the, uh, all of these, all of these conversations we're having here in the the 21st century are really introductory. We're just sort of opening the question, and I think right. I think taking the long view is absolutely right. This is, um, you know, on our quest to become more fully human, whatever that means. <laughs> Hopefully, it means something good. Um, thank you all for your contributions, and these are. We've been talking about lucid dreaming, new perspectives, new perspectives on consciousness in sleep. And I uh, want to thank uh, Ryan Hurd, Claire Johnson, Shane Dahl, and Fariba Bogzaran for joining me today. And I know we've gone a little over what we usually, we usually spend on these, but I, I think it's just been a really rich conversation. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Okay. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dream Talk Radio. I'm Anne Hill, and you can find all of my podcasts at dreamtalkradio.net. If you like what you just heard, please let others know and leave a review on iTunes. And if you want to know in advance who I'll be interviewing next, you can find out on the Dream Talk Radio Facebook page. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.